So if you'll turn in your Bible, we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We're continuing our study through the book of 1 Corinthians. We've been going passage by passage, just trying to help us better understand what it means. So we started in 1 Corinthians 1, we're now in 1 Corinthians 6, and just going passage by passage, letting the text expose itself to us so that we may submit ourselves to what God's Word says rather than what man's Word may say. And if you're curious about what that is called, that's just called expository preaching. And that's just our, our style of preaching here. So whether it's me, whether it's Michael, whether it's Ben, whether it's anyone else who comes up here and preaches, the, what we're going to try to do is lay bare before you what it is that God's Word says, not what we say. And we think that by better understanding God's Word, we will actually grow in our love for Him. Because if it is God's Word, and if we understand what He has said about Himself, then we're better understanding the greatest thing in all the universe. And if we understand that, then we'll grow in our love for him. So, each week we look at a passage. We've gone through nearly the first six verses, or sorry, six chapters of 1 Corinthians. And now we are in the last nine verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And if you're using one of the blue Bibles, um, maybe you're not familiar with looking at a Bible, in the blue Bible around you, on the floor there, that's going to be on page 955. 955. Big number is the chapter, small number is the verse. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting in verse 12. We read, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For... As it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your faithfulness. For your faithfulness to us. The fact that you do not change. Where we can come here each Sunday and sing praises to you and look at your word and be confident in it because you tell us that you are the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Thank you for your consistent faithfulness, even when we are not faithful. We pray that as we look at this text, that you would increase our faithfulness. We pray that you would help us better understand it. We pray that we would better understand the gospel, the good news. That's why we gather to celebrate that good news. Thank you. Lord, for those who are not able to be in here, think of the nursery workers, or we, we thank you for them. We thank you for their sacrifice to serve our kids. We pray for your blessing on them and your blessing on our children. Grant our children faith. Lord, you tell us to pray for our leaders, and so we do bring before you President Biden, 
and Vice President Harris. God, we pray that you would convert them. We pray that you would give them faith, that you would give them eyes to see and ears to hear, and they would submit themselves, not to their own authority, but to King Jesus' authority. Lord, we pray that that would play itself out in their policies and in the way they lead this nation. Lord, we pray for other churches. We thank you that there are other churches in the city and in the state and the nation and world that are preaching your word faithfully, that are proclaiming the gospel each week. Lord, we think of Huber Heights First Baptist, where we ask for your blessing on them. Lord, we pray for our church. We are grateful that you, by your kindness, have given us a place to gather. Know the gathering place isn't the church, but Lord, you've given your church, your people, a place to gather, and we are grateful for that. We pray for your blessing on Oakstone Academy as they have been so hospitable toward us. Lord, we pray that you would provide us with a permanent space. Let your will be done at the timing of that. Lord, we pray that us as a church, that we would pursue holiness, both spiritually and physically. You tell us that we are temples, so we pray that that would drive our actions. Help me speak clearly. Help me say what your word says. Nothing more, nothing less. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You only live once. YOLO. A, uh, a phrase that, yes, is, is very true and also was very much so popularized in 2012. Uh, became an internet sensation. There were t-shirts, there were websites, there were social media channels. Uh, one source said that the Washington Post and the Huffington Post described YOLO in 2012 as the newest acronym you'll love to hate. And they also described it as, quote, dumb. The word was criticized for its use because of its conjunction with reckless behavior. So you'd see people say, uh, maybe I shouldn't do it, but you know what, YOLO. And so they go and do this thing. It actually gained some pretty bad press uh, when an aspiring artist um, tweeted out that he was intoxicated and he was going 120 miles per hour around corners. And then he ended his tweet with YOLO. Uh, the, the man, unfortunately, ended up getting into a, a car accident shortly after tweeting that. And the car accident proved to be fatal. It's true that you only live once. YOLO has become a very popular phrase. But YOLO isolated from other truths can be catastrophic. And this idea of taking a partial truth, taking one truth and, and isolating it apart from other truths is not unique to our day. It didn't just pop up in 2012. It's, it was even going on in the Corinthian church here as we read. There are several phrases here they were using to justify sexual immorality. And the main thrust that Paul is getting at in his letter to the Corinthians here is that what we do, the way we use our bodies, reflects who we are unified to. The way we use our bodies reflects who we are unified to. And so if you're joining us this morning and you're not entirely sure where we are contextually, just some background with the book of Corinth. So the city of Corinth was in a prime trading route. And so it was a very cosmopolitan city. And so there are a lot of cultures, a lot of religious practices, and they all kind of come together in this melting, plot, melting pot called Corinth. And Paul established a church there, and he wrote to them. And we don't have that first letter that he wrote. This is called 1 Corinthians, but there's a zero Corinthians, so to speak, a, a letter that he wrote even before this one. And he wrote to them to encourage them, and then they responded back. And so Paul, beginning in chapter 7, will respond to some of their questions. But before that, he, he got a report 
from Chloe's people. We see this in chapter 1, verse 11. And she gave him some updates about what was going on in Corinth, her and her people. And so he is addressing some of those things. So Corinth was known for sexual immorality. It was known for religious diversity. It was known for corruption. And Paul addresses no less than 10 issues in this letter to the Corinthian church. So each thing that he's going that he starts off by saying some nice things to the Corinthian church. And then the rest of the letter, he's pretty much addressing at least 10 different issues. Now, we've covered the first three. So in chapters 1 through 4, he spent a long time talking about unbiblical divisions in the church. They were dividing over their preferences. They were dividing over the leaders that they had. There were unbiblical divisions. And and Paul is saying, no, 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 don't don't divide over them. Be unified in Christ. And then we see in chapter 5, the second issue, where they were tolerating severe sin. They were proud of their tolerance of this sin. And Paul encouraged them to address it. Then we saw the third issue last week where members of the Corinthian church were taking each other to court. They were suing each other. And Paul said, hey, look, you're you're involved with the Holy Spirit. You shouldn't have to take your internal issues to people who are not involved with the Holy Spirit. Is there no one wise among you who can handle these, these little trivial pursuits? And he said, ultimately, that it's shameful for them to take their lawsuits into the public square. And so now... In the latter half of chapter 6, we see the fourth issue. And that is the Corinthian people justifying sexual immorality. They were essentially saying, what I, I'm justified spiritually, but what I do with my body doesn't matter. So Paul addresses that. The one commentary points out, says that the Corinthians had adopted from the culture around them the idea that the body is permitted to have everything that it craves. Paul says, no, no, no. There's some things we need to think about before we pursue things with our bodies. And he lays them out here. So the ultimate theme that we see throughout the book of 1 Corinthians, try to hammer home each week, is that the church must be united in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we unify around. The Lord Jesus Christ. Now in this text, I think the text is broken up into three general sections. You can see that in your bulletin. Uh, So you see how we broke it up there. And I'll give you the points ahead of time. We see the use of the body, the membership of the body, and the ownership of the body. The use, the membership, and the ownership. So earlier in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul gave them a list of people who would not inherit the kingdom of God. We see this in verses 9 through 10. And Paul anticipates the Corinthians' response. He anticipates these common slogans that they would use. And so we see Paul addressing, hey, yeah, all things are lawful for me. And then he points out their other phrase, food is meant for the stomach and stomach for food. He knows that they're going to use these, what some commentators call Corinthian maxims or Corinthian slogans. He anticipates it. And these things, he's not saying that they're wrong, but he's qualifying them. He's providing more flesh to the bone to help them better understand these phrases. These phrases may have been something that Paul taught in his letter that we don't have. And now he's clarifying it because the Corinthians are taking that truth, the isolated truth, out of context to justify their sinful cravings, similar to YOLO. And so Paul elaborates on their slogan. He says, yeah, all, all things are lawful, but, verse 12, not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but... I won't be dominated by anything. 
Buddha's for the stomach and stung for food. But, so to speak, God will destroy both one and the other. And so one of the initial questions is, as you're looking at this text is, when Paul says all things, does he really mean all things are lawful? Like, can I do whatever I want? It needs to be addressed. And so just, just to put it out there, all things, when Paul says that, does not mean the things that Scripture prohibits. Okay? Similar to saying, it's a free country. By God's grace, we live in a free country. Right? And we can say it's a free country, but we're not free to do whatever we want. Right? And so when Paul says, all things are lawful, he's saying, yeah, these, these areas that were previously under what's called civil law, these foods that you couldn't eat, these impurity laws that you had, these festivals that you had to keep, these things are lawful for you now. But it doesn't mean that you get to go engage in sin. Okay? It can't include what God calls sin. And the reason why is because, is because God doesn't change. I mentioned this earlier. But Malachi 3.6 says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. It's a good thing that God doesn't change. We can know who we're coming before. He, he's not different today than he was yesterday. James 1.7, every, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. And so it's not that God was saying that, hey, earlier it's, it's sinful to commit adultery, but now it's lawful for you. His moral law still stands, but some of the civil laws that were for the nation state of Israel have been done away with. And so, some of these Corinthians, some of the Corinthian Christians were justifying sexually immoral behavior because they said, hey, I'm, I'm justified apart from the law. So why do I need to keep the law? And it's good news that we are justified apart from the law. Because through the law comes death for all of us. We've all fallen short. There's only been one who has perfectly fulfilled the law, and that's Jesus Christ. And for all those who put their faith in him, they are seen as those who have fulfilled the law because you are inside the one who has fulfilled it. On our own, we can't do it. But through Christ, we are seen as justified. And so these Corinthian Christians who did not like the law, decided to pursue their own cravings despite what the law may have said, they were anti-law. The, the theological term for that is antinomian. Namas in Greek means law. So to be anti-namas, antinomian, means to be anti-law. And so these Corinthian Christians were anti-law. They said, look, it's not even used for us to, to guide us. Like, we're just going to do away with it entirely. All things are lawful. We can participate and engage in anything we want because we've been justified apart from the law. And look, here's what they were missing. That God's law is actually good. It is worth delighting in. You don't have to turn there. But Psalm 1, the first two verses, read like this. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. And here it is, verse 2. But his delight, his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. God's law is good. It's also good news that we are not justified by the law. We are no longer <laughs> to acquire salvation through our own performance of the law. One has performed for us, Jesus Christ. 
So it is no longer for justification, but it's still worth delighting in. Something worth noting here, as we talk about um, delighting in God's law, theologians historically have divided the law in three ways. You don't need to remember this, but they divided it in moral, civil, and ceremonial. Okay, so the civil was for the nation state of Israel. Here's how you should live in this particular time and place. The ceremonial is how, how sins are atoned for. And so Jesus has atoned for our sins, so the ceremonial law is gone. The people of God are now the new Israel. And so those civil laws for the nation state of Israel in that time, those are gone. But God's moral law defines who he is. That's his character. We see that in the Ten Commandments. And so God doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And so his moral law still stands. And there are three uses for that moral law. It's used to do three things. The first is that it shows us our sin and our need for a Savior. Paul talks about in Romans how he wouldn't have known what coveting was if the law didn't say, you shall not covet. He says, but now I know, and so now I realize that I covet, and I'm sinful, and I need a Savior. So the first use of God's moral law is that we are, it shows us our sinfulness and our need for a Savior. The second use is that it restrains evil. Romans 2 talks about how the law is written on all the hearts, on all hearts. And so whether it's America, whether it's Africa, whether it's Russia, whether it's any country, any place you go, there's going to be an an inherent understanding that murder is wrong, that stealing is wrong, because God's moral law is written on our hearts. So those are the first two uses, that it shows us our sin and need for a Savior, and that it restrains evil. The third use is for a guide for godly living. We get this from Romans 3. Romans 3, starting verse 27, Paul writes, Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that no one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. This is good. You can probably hear the Corinthians cheering. That's right. (laughs) Forget the law. We don't need it. Then Paul anticipates that when he's writing to to the Romans here. He says, Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? And he responds strongly. He says, by no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. God's moral law is our guide for godly living. It's a good thing, something worth delighting in. And so Paul corrects the Corinthians' antinomian view, the anti-law attitude, by grounding his argument in the resurrection. He says, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Corinthians are saying, pursue all cravings. Go for it. Food for the stomach, stomach for food. Sex for the body, the body for sex. And Paul says, no, 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 no. Look, if we are in Christ, then we'll be resurrected like him, bodily. Christ is resurrected bodily. If we are in him, we will experience a bodily resurrection as well. He was the first fruits. So here's something that we sometimes can, can overlook, is that our eternal state is not just a spiritual one. Our eternal state is spiritual and physical. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But for those who are absent from the body now, those who have passed, who are in Christ, they're with him spiritually. But that's not going to be their eternal state. Their eternal state to be with him spiritually and physically when the resurrection takes place. And so Paul says, look, what you do with your body matters because you will be bodily resurrected. The Lord will raise us up bodily 
So pursue what is helpful. Don't be dominated by anything. Yeah, all things are lawful for you, but only pursue what's helpful. And so Christian, we need to use discernment when determining what is helpful. There are some things that simply just are not helpful. He tells us not to be dominated by anything. So if we do find ourselves thinking about something that has a particular hold in our life, something that has, as Paul would say, dominated us, we need to remove that thing from our lives. We need to get rid of it, confess it to the Lord, and turn away. And then for all of us in here, we, we need to not be swayed by isolated truths, by partial truths or slogans that our culture or even sometimes within the church we like to use. We must test everything against the scripture. The Bible must interpret the Bible. We've all got our favorite teachers. I've got mine. But that individual is not the final authority. The Bible must interpret the Bible. God does not change. He will not contradict himself. If we don't understand something in Scripture, that says more about us than it does about God. It means we need to to study more. We need to ask the Holy Spirit to give us illumination. So, the way we use our bodies matters. We need to be careful with the way we use our bodies. Pursue that which is helpful. Not be dominated by anything. Paul lays out the use of the body. And now we look at the membership of the body. It's in verses 15 through 17. He says, and he says this phrase several times. He says it 10 times in the book of 1 Corinthians. Do you not know? Do you not know? He says it 10 times in the book of 1 Corinthians. Six of those times are in this chapter. So he's using a rhetorical question here to make his point. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? So look, if you're a Christian, you are united to Christ spiritually, but also physically. He says, shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Corinth was known, this city, Corinth, was known for its careless and casual approach to sex. It was a very cosmopolitan area. Sex was readily available. It was common to be sexually active at a young age. Sex outside of marriage wasn't uncommon, and many members of the Corinthian church had already engaged in that. Paul even says earlier in verse 11, such were some of you. But what was unique here about the Corinthian church is that they were still pursuing those things even after their conversion because that was just what they knew. And so Paul is addressing it. And they were using scripture to defend their pursuit of what God calls sin. And so Paul is addressing it. And he does it by quoting Genesis 2.24. He says, do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, and here's the quote from Genesis 2, the two will become one flesh. Adam and Eve, the, the first, humanity's first marriage, are brought together, and God says that the two will become one flesh. And so due to the intimate nature of sexual morality, or sorry, excuse me, of just sexual activity, it unites two people bodily and spiritually. It's a very intimate thing. And so there's a union taking place that not only is bodily, but it also happens on a spiritual level. And yet, in Corinth, it was readily available for anyone who wanted it. To engage in sexual activity with a prostitute was not uncommon. And so, what Paul is getting at is that God's people, we are united to Christ spiritually, but we're also united to him bodily. We're also united to him physically. 
spiritually now, but bodily at the resurrection. We are members of Christ. And so that, when he says there, shall I take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? To read that more literally is to say, shall I rip off the limbs and take out the organs of Christ and connect them to a prostitute? He's saying, no, by no means. That's not what you're designed for. So Christian, what we do, who we unite our physical bodies to, matters. Don't unite yourself to someone you're not meant to be united to. Sexual activity is meant to be between one man and one woman in the confines of covenant marriage. There's sexual immorality all throughout our day, just like it was in, in the Corinthians. I don't need to get into it. There, there are kids in here. But you understand that there, there's sexual immorality that is prevalent even today. And the design that God has given for his people is that we would be united with our spouse, the covenant partner that we have, and that is who we would be able to enjoy sexual activity and sexual intimacy with. Don't seek it. and Don't seek to unite yourself with someone that you're not meant to be united to. Whether, in, in, like Paul's saying here, I mean, it's still available today, whether that's prostitution or whether that's with a coworker, or a neighbor or a friend or someone at the gym or someone online or pornography. Don't, do not unite yourself to someone you're not meant to be united to. Uniting sexually has a bodily element and a spiritual element. Now, in a room this size, assuredly, some of us have fallen into that. Some of us have engaged in sexual activity outside of the confines of covenant marriage. And here's what I want to just lay before you and remind you of. That God's grace and God's mercy is available to you no matter what your past is. For all who would confess and turn away and throw themselves on Jesus, the only one who could fulfill the law, the only one who did fulfill the law, your sins will be washed away. Paul says, such were some of you. He's talking to the Corinthian Christians. He says, hey, don't, don't forget who you were, all right? You guys aren't, aren't perfect here. Such were some of you. And in the room here, such were some of you. Such are some of us. There needs to be a reminder, not only of who we are, but also, or who we were, but also who we are in Christ. That he has fulfilled the law. And so if you find yourself either wrestling with sexual immorality now, or you have a past of it, know that God's mercy and God's grace and his forgiveness is still extended to you. If you would confess your sin and turn away and throw yourself on Jesus Christ. So, Paul lays out the use of the body. He lays out the membership of the body. And now we see that he lays out the ownership of the body. And this, this is kind of where the whole argument is grounded in. Okay, this third point. So, here's what he says. He says, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Okay, so let's, let's unpack that a little bit, one phrase at a time. The first part there, flee. This is his first imperative, his first command in this passage. He says, hey, I've told you all these things. Now, here's what I'm telling you about. Now, here's what I'm telling you to do. Talked about sexual immorality. Now, here's what you need to do, Corinthians. When sexual immorality comes up, when that temptation is there, flee. Get out. The Greek word there, 
means to flee, to run away, to escape, to avoid, to disappear quickly. Some of you watching cartoons as a kid remember Coyote and Roadrunner and Roadrunner. It'd be there one scene and the next scene he's gone and there's just a cloud of dust, cloud of smoke. That's what we are to be when sexual morality shows up. Gone. We're out of here. Doesn't say endure. Doesn't say fight. We are called to fight sin. But when it comes to sexual morality, Paul is not saying fight. He's saying flee. Get out of there. You are not strong enough. One of the strongest men in the world, Samson, one of the most pious, David, and one of the wisest, Solomon, all three fell to sexual morality. You are not strong enough. You are not wise enough. You are not pious enough to withstand sexual morality. Flee. Don't play around with it. Then we see these strange phrases. Sin outside the body and sin against his own body. So the sin outside the body, that's sin that doesn't unite you to anyone or any particular thing. It's simply actions that go contrary to God's law. These are sins outside the body. But sexual activity is designed, as we mentioned earlier, to unite you to somebody else. And so sexual activity, being the nature that it is to unite two bodies, Paul even says this, the two will become one flesh. The intimate nature of it, as we said earlier, has the physical and spiritual aspect to it. So to engage in it is to unite yourself with someone you're not meant to be united to. And so therefore you are sinning, not only against that person, but against your own body. Whether that's through thought, whether that's through video or an image, or whether that's through a physical relationship. And so Paul continues on with another do you not know statement. He says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. If you are a Christian, you've been purchased. You've been bought. You're known now as a temple of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit indwells God's people. It's called the Holy Spirit because God is holy. This is his spirit, his Holy Spirit. And now he, because he's bought his people, he now indwells them. He now sends his Holy Spirit to live inside of them. And so if you're a Christian, you've probably heard your body is a temple a million times, depending on what your background is with Christianity, how long you've claimed to be a Christian. If you're not a Christian, this probably sounds very strange. Like, so if we were to cut open a Christian, do we, do we see like a little pixie dust there or some kind of spirit inside? Can we find this thing? Is it, like, is it spatial? John Piper helpfully points out it's not spatial, okay? But he helpfully points out that it is the Lord identifying and influencing his people. Identifying with and influencing his people. In John 2, the, the Jews were asking Jesus for a sign. He said, hey, like, what sign will you give us to prove that you are the, the Son of God, that you are the Messiah? And he says, destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. Jesus is the temple of God. So if we are united to Jesus, if we are in Jesus, united to him, he is the temple, then we, as members of him, are part of that temple. Jesus, having the Spirit of God inside of him, We are united to him. We receive the Spirit of God inside of us. And so therefore, we are considered temples of the Holy Spirit. Now, we don't want to just 
and gloss over that either. In the Old Testament, the temple was where the presence of God was. And there'd be a veil, multiple veils, veils between the main area and the holy place, and then another veil between the holy place and the holy of holies. And in the holy of holies, that was the special place where God's presence was. And once a year, the high priest would go in there to atone for sin. But now, if you look at Matthew 27, see Jesus on the cross, we see the veil being torn. That's referring to that veil between the holy place and the holy of holies. That veil that was keeping God's presence from going outside of the holy of holies has now been torn. And so what that means is that all those who are in Christ now have unfettered access to the presence of God. Whether we're here, whether we're at work, whether we're in the car, we have access to the presence of God. We, we just sang about this in Christ the true and better. You see, with his arms stretched wide to heaven, see the waters part in two. See, the veil is torn forever. Cleansed with blood, we pass now through. We have the privilege to have access to the presence of God, of this holy God, the holy of holies, because we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. So Christian, you're not your own. What you do with your body matters. Access to God's presence came at a great price. The death of the Son, an unblemished lamb, a sinless sacrifice. The Father sent his Son to be this. So when we read that we've been bought at a price, that we are not our own, it's easy to just read over that because that's a, a common passage. But if you think about it, we've been bought. We have been purchased. We do not own ourselves. Someone else owns us, the one who bought us, the one who purchased us. We were slaves of sin, but now we've been purchased. And now we are slaves of righteousness. And the ironic thing is that the scriptures say that that is where true freedom is. To be a slave of righteousness, to be a slave of Christ. So how, how in the world does that work? Well, we have to define freedom, right? Freedom has two elements to it, ability and desire. So freedom is the ability to do that which you most desire, okay? I don't have, as cool as it would be, I don't have the freedom to play quarterback for the Ohio State Buckeyes. The desire might be there, but the ability is, is lacking. I don't have... If, if the ability was there, and let's say the desire wasn't, if I was forced to be quarterback of the Ohio State Buckeyes, but I didn't want to, that's not freedom either. There's ability and desire. When we are slaves to righteousness, when we are slaves to holiness, when God purchases us, he puts his Holy Spirit inside of us. It's now when the Holy Spirit of God is inside of us, we now have a desire for holy things, for righteousness, to follow what God calls is good, to forsake sin, to pursue what God calls us to. We have that desire now. And we have the ability, because the Holy Spirit is indwelling us and enabling us to walk in righteousness. So that's where true freedom is. We now have the ability to do that which we most desire. And this, when we do this, leads 
us to glorifying God. And this is exactly what Jesus said the Holy Spirit would do. John 16. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. Verse 14. He will glorify me. This is Jesus speaking about the Holy Spirit. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The Holy Spirit's ministry is to glorify the Son. And the Son glorifies the Father. And so when we walk in holiness, when we view our bodies as temples of the Holy Spirit, and we consider what is helpful, we consider that we don't want to be dominated by anything, when we walk in holiness, we are glorifying the Holy Spirit inside of us who glorifies Christ, who glorifies the Father. And so by us walking in holiness, by us considering ourselves as temples of the Holy Spirit, it glorifies God. And that's exactly what we were made for. So Christian, this, this has implications for your physical health. It has implications for your mental health, for your spiritual health. The way we use our bodies, the things we pursue, should be in accordance to the knowledge that we have that we are temples of the Holy Spirit. We are owned by God and made temples of the Spirit. And if we're temples, then our entire existence is for the glory of God. That's why temples were made, is to glorify the God that they claim to be worshiping there. Whatever religion, that's what the temple is for, worship and glory of that God. So if we are temples of the Holy Spirit, we are made to worship the God that has placed his Holy Spirit inside of us. And we do that not only spiritually, but it also has physical implications. How we use our bodies matters. The way we use our body reflects who we are unified to. Union with Christ enables us to glorify God with our body. Why? Because Jesus Christ, the one we're unified to, was the only one who perfectly glorified God with his body. He's the only one who fulfilled the law perfectly. So if we're unified to him, he enables us through his Holy Spirit to do these things. It doesn't mean that we will walk perfectly. We've talked about progressive sanctification. It's an ongoing process. And when we do fall, we confess that to him, and we are washed again. This is the good news of the gospel, that we have an ability and a desire to pursue holiness. But when we fall short of that, we also have a great high priest who has entered the Holy of Holies on our behalf, and commune stands in between us and God and says, Lord, they're perfect. They're in me. So Christian, use your body to glorify the God who purchased you. Use wisdom when discerning what is helpful. Don't use your freedom to be dominated by anything. If you are currently dominated by something, remove it from your life. If you're married, Use your body to glorify the God who purchased you. Be faithful to your spouse. If you're unmarried, use your body to glorify the God who purchased you. Exercise self-control. This is the good news that we have. Is that Jesus Christ did this perfectly for us. We will fall short. But for all those who confess their sexual morality, all those who confess their sin, all those who confess those things, and throw themselves on Christ, the only one to fulfill this perfectly, they will have those past sins removed to be able to be seen as holy 
by God forevermore because you are in the Holy One and you have a presence, a seat in the Holy of Holies. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the good news that there is salvation for all who have fallen short, that you have made a way. God, thank you. We pray that if there are those who are far from you this morning, that they would confess their sin, that they would trust Jesus for the holiness that they need. We pray that they would not let today pass. They'd be willing to talk to me or Ben or any, anyone else, maybe a friend that they came with, about what it means to give their life to Christ. God, we pray that we would view ourselves the way that you say that we are, as temples of the Holy Spirit. And that would impact not only our spiritual lives, but it would impact our physical lives, the way that we use the bodies that you have graciously given us. Help us to do that. We cannot do this on our own. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would enable us to do it. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.